Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Um, we are coming to a new stage in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, we have finished the first, the first four of the Ten Commandments, which are all about how we try to limit the God of creation, how we try to limit the God of the Exodus, how we try to limit the God of Jesus, and the God who has sent us the Holy Spirit that formed what we call the Christian Church. And now we are embarking upon Commandments 6 through 10, right? And what we're actually doing is we're skipping over 5, which is, anyone know what 5 is? Yes, honor your father and mother. Good job. Uh, and we're actually saving that until the very last uh, connect of the semester uh, because it's going to be a lot more pertinent then because some of you will be going home for the rest of the, uh, for the summer, and I think that'll just be a really good talk to have at that time. So we're skipping to, to, uh, to six tonight, uh, and we're going to spend the next part of this semester working through the, the commandments six through ten, which are um, often called the community Commandments, And I think it's really important right now to remember the context in which these commandments are given. Now, if you were at this earlier this semester, in the first lesson that I taught on the Ten Commandments, we debunked a lot of the myths that surround them. Uh, and so this is just kind of a refresher on that in some ways, but hopefully there will be some new stuff in there for you as well. Um, it's really important, I think, for us to remember that, that these commandments weren't dropped out of the sky arbitrarily by God for everyone in the world to abide by, right? They were given to a particular people in a particular place in a particular time, right? These commandments are actually given to a people who were not a people at that time. These were a ragtag group of former slaves just as of probably a week ago when they were given, less than a week ago, really. And so, um, and really, and, and, and an important thing is, they weren't a community, right? So the, the, we see this, I think it's in Exodus 12, uh, verse 38. It says that a mixed multitude left with the Israelites, right? So these aren't even just solely a people with a common heritage. This is just a group of people, just ragtag group of people who are not anything alike, okay? And have not much in common other than the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. So this is, these are commandments are given to a group who had not actually been a group before, and who, for the first time, he was, for the first time in their entirety of their lives were actually deciding what they did with their time, right? Up until this point, they woke up and they did what their slave masters told them to do. And so for the first time, they're actually going to use the cognitive function of making choices with their day and on, on, a, on an extreme or high level, right? That's, that's the context in which these uh, five commandments, these community commandments, were given. But one thing I think that, that we might, might think is, is that, okay, well, fine, you know, these, these five commandments, they're, they're all about just kind of how you play nice in the sandbox of life, and, and you know, we just need to not do a few things, and, and we'll, we'll kind of get along just a-okay, and, and we're good with God, and we're good with other people. If we do that, I think we're shortchanging what these commandments have to offer us, and these really these five words reveal to us, right? Because what they reveal is what it looks like, what it looks like to live as God's people in 
his world, right? What it looks like to bear the image of God, what it looks like to bear the name of God, what it looks like, as it says in Exodus 19, and the Ten Commandments come in Exodus 20, to be a kingdom of priests, the people who represent God out into the world. That's what, these, that's what these commandments are doing. They are forming a people who can then represent God out into the world. So they don't just reveal to us how we're supposed to live, but they reveal to us something about our creator and our redeemer. And so we shouldn't divorce these five commandments from that greater purpose. Now, before I think we can um, take these five words from God and allow them to shape and form us as a community um, in his image, I think we must address two possible pitfalls that we could possibly fall into as we approach these. Um, I think we all probably fall somewhere on this spectrum. We either have a natural affinity for rules or a natural aversion to rules, right? And, we're, and maybe we experience both, but we probably have, we lean one way or another, right? We're either kind of like a, eh, I'm not a big fan of rules, or yes, I love rules and I love following them, right? Now, if you're like me, you would fall into the category of liking rules, having affinity for them. And we are part of what I'm going to call the cult of conformity. When some of us hear rules, it's not that we get excited, but they just make us comfortable. We know it is expected of us and we know what is expected of everybody else. We're the ones who actually get a little bit frustrated or upset when a paper or project is, the date is moved on it because, well, we had worked really hard on it. It's just not fair that it got moved. We appreciate clear standards and everyone being held to them. It goes well with our to-do list, right? Rules are another box that we can check off and we like that feeling of checking something off our to-do list. We either did them or we didn't. It's very black and white. Now. For those of you who are, um, have maybe an aversion to rules, uh, there's this thing in our culture, and this is, I think, even bigger than this maybe aversion to rules, but there's this thing in our culture called the cult of authenticity. And a lot of people have actually begun to write about this. Authenticity is a word that has actually come up more and more in our culture. Uh, words like organic or real um, are, are um, used a lot in marketing because of this idea. Um, and when some of us hear the word rules, we begin to shudder, right? Because our culture is uh, really forming this cult of authenticity. As one article puts it, while inauthentic people try to please God and their parents or friends or the wider society society's expectations, authentic people are quote-unquote true to themselves. Or they follow their quote-unquote heart. And I think it's interesting because this is something that spans cultural divides, right? He's not a regular politician. He's authentic is something that has been said both of Bernie Sanders, but also Donald, Donald Trump. Another way of thinking about these two categories is, is the false dichotomy. Uh, I think in which we all often find ourselves functioning, right? We can either have truth or we can have grace. We can have love or we can have the law, but they don't really mix or mingle, right? However, conformity and authenticity, truth and grace, law and love are not opposites that don't mix. Rather, I think each of those paradigms are in an interrelated and edifying relationship. Law and love need each other. And I think this expresses itself both internally and externally, right? Internal to our, our lives, our inner being, our, our spiritual growth, but also externally in how we treat others. Internally, right, I don't think we can grow without both law and love, right? The legalism of sheer conformity leaves no room for us to grow, right? We have to be perfect from the outset. 
but also, too, as it keeps everything on the surface level. Legalism can provide for us a checklist of do's and don'ts to keep, but it actually can't help us deal with the complexities of the everyday life that we experience as humans in this world. All it can achieve is a black and white exterior or surface level perfection without any real change. We might change some exterior behaviors, but our heart stands untransformed. On the other hand, authenticity alone provides zero motivation to change. Be true to yourself, but we as Christians believe in the doctrine of, in some sense, one form or another, original sin. We're all selfish. If we're true to ourselves, we're just going to be selfish human beings walking around saying, me, 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 me. And society couldn't actually function. Yes, we want to have an authentic love for God, an authentic love for others. But we need law to help us form habits, hear this, and build muscle memory. Right? Think about working out. Right? You have to build muscle memory before it becomes natural. Or anything that you've done a lot, if you played a sport, right? the muscle memory eventually comes. And something that you had to work on then becomes, well, just flows right out of you. And we need the same thing for love, right? If our love is going to be authentic, it's going to freely flow from it from us. We actually need the law to help us habituate that. You see, the power of the gospel is transformation. It invites us all, come as you are, come as you are. But don't stay that way. Externally, I don't think we're able to live out the Christian life without both, without law and love. J.I. Packer and he captures it really well. He says, law and love are not opponents, but they're allies, forming together the axis of true morality. The law needs love as its drive, or else we get the Pharisees that put principles before people. How often have we seen that in churches? It says one can be perfectly good without actually loving one's neighbor. Right? All it can provide is surface level without transformation. Surface level change without transformation of the heart. And love needs law as its eyes, for love is blind. I love this. To want to love somebody Christianly does not, in and of itself, tell you how to do it. Only as we observe the limits set by God's law can we really do people any good. If we want to actually love and love well, then we really need to concern ourselves with these five community commandments. If we want to love people and love them well, then we need to really concern ourselves with these five community commandments. See, just like an engine needs oil to run smoothly, the law needs, uh, love needs the law. And think about any healthy relationship, I think we'd all say, has boundaries. And while the law without love is aimless, the law properly placed inside of love propels us out to the world as agents of transformation that we ourselves have experienced in our hearts. things about uh, these six community, these five community commandments, commandments six through ten, is that each is stated negatively, right? You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Uh, and it does seem to be quite a little uh, Debbie Downer, right? Which I'm completely okay with because I'm not a positive poly. Um, but with each of these negatively stated commandments, 
actually comes a positive implication, right? So, you shall not murder. The positive implication is, well, value human life. And I think we see this most clearly articulated in Genesis 9, uh, 6 and 7. Uh, this is, by the way, God commissioning Noah after the flood. Noah and his entirety of his family. And you'll see echoes of Genesis 1 in this. Whoever sheds human blood by, human, by humans, shall their blood be shed. Right? So, life for life. All right? Don't murder. For the image of God, for in the image of God, God has made humankind. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it, right? So it's not just you, right? It's not just that, you know, don't murder, it's create, flourish, fill the earth. It isn't just that we're not supposed to murder, it's that we're supposed to cultivate and sustain. It's that we're supposed to nurture and preserve human life. And that, that idea that human life is not just something that was, you know, just to be tolerated, but something that was valuable and so valuable that if you took it, you didn't deserve to live anymore. That is something that distinguished Israel from all the pagan religions that surrounded them. Some ancient uh, Near Eastern laws did actually contain um, the, the phrase, do not murder, or, or some semblance of it, right? So you have the Code of Hammurabi. You've all seen that in history. You've all taken the world so, right? You've probably heard that. That does contain something like it. But even in, in that kind of the, the codex that is the Code of Hammurabi, it doesn't have the, this kind of backing that we, have, that we get in Genesis 9, 6 through 7, where it says, you don't murder. You value human life because it is what? Human life is made in the image of God himself. Right? You don't have that kind of backing anywhere else except for the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, right? So just a couple examples, right? Uh, a common thing in ancient Near Eastern, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern context, and uh, yes, you can see the cat is going to come teach with me today. Um, if I step on it, uh, that may be intentional, actually. I don't really I don't like this one. Um, I was a bigger fan of the mom. Uh, all right. So, uh, sorry. I just, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, all right, so for example, uh, a common thing in ancient Near Eastern culture was that uh, the punishment wouldn't fit a crime, right? And so that the punishment was actually worse than the crime itself. So instead of life for life, it was, or it's, you know, a common thing we hear. We have Exodus 21, 23 through 25, but... Uh, uh, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, right? Basically, they're even, right? The reason that was given is because in this culture, in the ancient Near Eastern context, it was often life for eye, uh, hand for tooth, foot for burn, life for just even a bruise, Right? The, the, the punishment always outweighed the crime. And so uh, that, was just, that was one way in which they didn't value human life. Now, in the ancient um, Egyptian context, right, this is the context that the Israelites were just leaving. The way, they, the way their worldview functioned is that the Pharaoh was divine. It was some sort of divine image. But the average Joe was just that. The average Joe was average. So me and you, we weren't that special. We didn't really matter. We didn't really reflect God's image into the world. We, we weren't anything too special, a.k.a. we were we were expendable, but the Pharaoh is not. The Pharaoh is valuable. And ancient Canaanite religions, right? We talked about ancient Egyptian, but ancient Canaanite, where they're heading, right? Because they go out of Egypt and they were going to settle in the land of Canaan. Uh, there was a god of Moloch. 
And anyone knows what kind of sacrifice Moloch desired? Child sacrifices, right? Yet again, devaluing human life. And then just one more. I mean, the ancient uh, Near Eastern worldview, uh, the, way, the way they perceived of just the entire created order, right? All that we can see and touch and smell, you know, what, what we can do with our five senses. All of this was really just the playground of the gods. And humans were just kind of like kind of bystanders in, in the gods' activity, right? We, we weren't the, the kind of, we didn't really matter. We were just kind of, things happened to us, but that's because the gods were fighting. All right? And so humans didn't really matter. And so the question is, when all around them, human life wasn't valued, why should Israel, right? What does it tell us about Israel that the first horizontal or community commandment is do not murder? And thinking back to Genesis 9, I think it tells us really two things in particular. And these are things we've already kind of referenced, but let me just unpack them. First is that the God of Israel is a God of life, is a God of creation, is a God of human flourishing, right? So whereas many pagan religions, creation was the byproduct of the activity of the divine, right? So often, like, the idea, like, literally, it's not just that creation now, but literally formation of creation was, was due to, like, divine fighting. And if you look at, you know, creation stories and creation myths throughout, um, back in this context, this is, this is, a lot of them follow that pattern, or a lot of them follow that um, it's actually you know, lower gods created humans to outsource their labor, right? And so we were just, we were just kind of supposed to do the labor of the gods. Um, and there are some other uh, ancient Near Eastern creation myths that are not appropriate for this context, and so I'll not share them. Uh, but you can imagine the way that they conceived of that. Um, pun not intended. The uh, Christian God revealed to us um, in the Hebrew Bible, though, is a God who intentionally brought creation about he intentionally brought creation into existence. And thus, hear this, because he intentionally brought it about, he cares for it. He values it, right? He has vested interest in it. He made it for a reason. He has a purpose for all of this, for the entirety of our human existence. He wants us to cultivate society. He wants us to nurture and preserve his creation, right? And the second thing is this, right? I think the same thing that's revealed to us when we ask ourselves this question, why, why would Israel value human life when the, everyone around them didn't? Is that humanity is made in the image of God. This is something that we think about a lot. I mean, you know, it's something you've probably heard a lesson on before, but I mean, just think about it for a second again. What makes murder so horrible? Why is this the first commandment, the first of the horizontal commandments? See, murder is one image bearer taking away, of a lot, taking away the life of another image bearer. Right? To murder is to take away the life of someone who is made in the same image in which we are made. And so it is a sin, a great sin against God. Right? We are murdering someone made in his image, so it's a sin against God. It's obviously a great sin against the person who was murdered. Right? It doesn't end up well for them, right? But it's also a great sin against ourselves. For to murder is to take away the life of someone who is made in the same image in which we are made. I am just finished the Harry Potter audiobooks. And um, Harry Potter fans? Harry Potter fans? Yeah. All right. Anyone know where I'm going? Come on. What? Take this. Starts with the H. Ends with the or crux, yeah. Or crux, right? The, um, I think or crux is really actually like nailing this on the head pretty well. 
Um, so Horcruxes are, are a thing, if you haven't read Harry Potter, it's a thing. Tom Riddle becomes Lord Voldemort. You've probably heard of him. He must not be named. Um, and so Tom Riddle's on school, and he's talking to Professor Slughorn. All right, and this is how the conversation goes. And exactly how does one split his soul? Tom Riddle asks. Professor Slughorn responds, well, you must understand that the soul is supposed to remain intact and whole. Splitting it is an act, of, it's a, it's an act of violation. It is against nature, right? You're not supposed to split the soul apart. But Tom Riddle presses. But how do you do it? And so Slughorn finally answers, and he says, by an act of evil, the supreme act of evil, by committing murder, killing rips the soul apart. And I think that really nails it on its head. To murder someone who's made in the same image as us. I mean, we got to think about that. To murder someone who's made in the same image as us tears us apart, right? And so hear this. Think about the positive implication, right? We, we think we can pass that bar. All right, I won't murder. Fine. But think about the positive implication of this. When we don't value human life, we make ourselves subhuman. When we don't value human life, we make ourselves subhuman. Jesus really ratchets up the game in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to a people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in dangers of, fi of the fires of hell. You see, for Jesus, anger is mental murder, and insults are verbal murder. Valuing human life as a Christian to be a Christ follower is more than just checking off some political box or jumping over an extremely low bar for most of us. Rather, in our culture, that is so often defined, hear this, that is so often defined by the glorification of anger. In our culture, that is so often defined by the objectification of bodies. And in our culture, it is so often defined by the marginalization of those who disagree with us, the other. The Sixth Commandment is a call to radically reorient our lives as the people who bear the name of Yahweh. And so for the rest of tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to ask four questions that I think are going to help us live into the spirit and the heart of this commandment, this positive implication to value human life rather than murder with anger and insults. All right? So here's the first I want you to answer this. I want us to kind of, this is, from here on out, this is, hopefully will be very discussion-based. What, what does a community where we value human life look like? Just off the top of your head, what do you think? Leaving widows, those who are afflicted. Yeah, that's right, James 1.27, right? Look after, look after the orphans and widows and um, those who cannot, basically those who can't speak for themselves, right? So yeah, we're going to care about the marginalized. Right. What else? It's, it's, yeah. 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 Right. So, like, loving our neighbor as ourselves, which implies a couple things, right? To love our neighbor as ourselves, what what must we first do? We must love whom? Ourselves. That's right. We gotta love ourselves. 
And to love our neighbor, which means, and we talked about if you were part of our, our conversations at um, talking about the fruit of the Spirit of love, love is what? It's a commitment, right? We've got we to tie ourselves to people, which means we've got to submit to community, and we're going to talk about that later. Um, all right, what else? What else does it look like? What does a community where we value human life look like? This is great so far. Keep going. more peaceful, right? Yeah. We'll actually work through issues rather than hold resentment towards others, yeah, which is going to create a lot of peace. What else? Um, probably one where we're all on an equal playing field, sort of you, no classes. Yes, right. A lot more sense of, 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 of uh, levelness, right? Or, or less, less um, at least less judgment about it, right? You won't. It's great. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, handling conflict well. <laughs> uh, plug for next week. We're going to talk all about conflict. It's going to be really fun. <laughs> we're, to, we'll skip, we're actually skipping to the ninth commandment, which is um, uh, don't gossip, basically. So don't bear false witness. All right. Um, I have four things. I got four things. And, and you all really hit on a lot of the things. Honestly, some better than I, I have. Um, the first is I think we'll care about individuals, Right. Um, in some sense, now I think this is a very good thing to do. Um, it is easier to, to march for a life than it is to forgive a roommate or a neighbor or a friend. It's easier to kind of get involved in like some sort of like um, kind of big picture, you know, activism, which is not a bad thing on any form or fashion, than it is to actually love individuals, right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving absolutely nobody in particular. Think about this. Now, if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, which I've been on short-term mission trips, I've led them, I love them, I'm not trying to bash them, but just think about this for a moment. Why would we pay uh, or raise a thousand plus dollars to go on a mission trip abroad if we aren't willing to care about the loss of our own campus? Why are we willing to pay or raise a thousand plus dollars to buy ourselves a plane ticket so that we can go abroad if we aren't willing to forgive our roommate who has hurt us? Why are we willing to raise or pay over a thousand plus dollars to go abroad if we aren't caring for those who are marginalized and voiceless right around us? And it's something we've got to deal with. We've got to love individuals. We've got to commit ourselves and be with and for actual, tangible people and all of their messy brokenness. And also, I think it's true that we need people to do that for us, too, don't we? Two, I do think we're going to care about, if we care about individuals, we also should care about systems, right? If we care about individuals, we should care about the systems the sinful systems which entangle them. Sin isn't, uh, hasn't just marred us as individuals, right? But it has marred everything that we as a human race have created, which includes our socioeconomic, our socio-cultural, and our socio-political systems that often plague people. And they get harder for people to make their way in this world. For example, and I, I'm going to use just, you know, this can kind of get a little messy element, right? 
Um, and so I'm, I'm just going to try to use a very black and white example, very clear example. Um, William Wilberforce, uh, uh, if you have seen the movie Amazing Grace, right? So if you know that, you, have anyone seen, seen the movie Amazing Grace? It was a pretty good movie. Uh, you should watch it. Um, he, he was a he was a British parliamentarian. Um, he was he was in Parliament in Britain, and um, way back in the day, 18th century, and um, and he ended up taking a, a he, he ended up basically ending the slave trade in, in all of in all of Britain. At least so Britain stopped stopped participating in the slave trade. Um, right? Slavery was a system that humans created that ensnared people. Right? If we want to care about individuals, we want to love them, we want to people that live into the actual heart and spirit of the, fifth, uh, the sixth commandment, do not murder, and therefore value human life, then we couldn't just say to that person who was ensnared and, and, and enslaved, we couldn't just say, oh, I'm so sorry, and move on with our life, right? Or, oh, you know, I'll try to take care of you. We would have to actually take on the system the sinful system that humans created and ensnared them, we need to take it on. We're not loving it if we're not doing that. And so if we're going to care about individuals, we also need to care about the systems that ensnare them. And that's just one very clear example, but there's tons of things I think that we could come up with today. Systems that ensnare people, enslave them, and damage them, make it very difficult for them to get by in this world. Third, I think we'd be a people who are centered on God. One of my favorite verses, and this is because it's, it's one of my, the, ver, my, the favorite verse of one of my mentors, is Micah 6.8. It's also in none other than the Auburn Creed, where I graduated from. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Right? And I think if we wanted to kind of summarize what it looks like to value human life, do justice, love mercy, Walk humbly with God, right? Because those first two, doing justice and loving mercy, can only take place if we are walking in step with the Spirit. And so we want to be a people who love people, then we need to be walking in step with the Spirit. We need to be a people who are centered on the Word of God so it can shape and form us so that we can love better. And the fourth is, what does a community look like that values human life? I think we should look weird. <laughs> We should look weird, but in the best of ways, right? If we were a community, I mean, think about this. If we were a community, if the RFC were people who were just absolutely and radically committed to caring about individual people on a deep level, recognizing the systems in which they are entangled and ensnared in, and were centered on God, don't you think that we would be strangely attractive? Right? In our culture, that is so often defined by the glorification of anger. In our culture, that's so often defined by the objectification of bodies. In our culture, that is so often defined by the marginalizations of those who disagree with us. Would a group of people who are caring for others, caring about the systems that ensnared individuals, and are centered on God not be so weird, but yet so good? Second question. In what ways... Do we not value human life in our ministry? We'll make it a little bit more personal. What are, what are ways that, that this doesn't happen? What are ways that what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 kind of get to us? 
A lot of times we just, you know, write people off too easy. Yeah. Just say, you know, we judge them and say, man, they're not, they're not interested in the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, they would never, they would never really to, you know, come to church or mm-hmm. even sit down and have a study. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I was. I mean, it's a classic phrase. It's a classic phrase for a reason. We judge a book by its cover, and we just kind of write people off, right? Or let's just be honest. Sometimes we just kind of get a weird vibe from somebody. We just write them off. We don't want to deal with them, right? <laughs> it happens. It's not good, but it happens. All right, what else? It's good. The society of selfishness. Yeah, right? I mean, think about this, right? You're in church four or five hours a week, maybe maybe, maybe a lot more, maybe. By the way, those of you who hang out and say the RCL all the time, that counts as being at church. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, right? So, like, you, you get formed by the Word of God for probably, what, like, max, we'll, we'll, we'll be generous, eight hours a week. And you live out in a culture that is, I think we'd all fairly say is quite selfish. And you're formed by that the other 150 plus of your waking hours each week. 150 to, 150 to 8. Which one do you think is doing more forming? You don't think selfishness has entered its way into this room? How's right here? I mean, I'm selfish. Well, it's good. I think we um, do that. I think in some sense we don't value too much, like with our time. I think mm-hmm. if we only stick to the same two people that we talk to every week and see every week, it mm-hmm. kind of places more importance on them as opposed to other people in the room who are also children of God and also want to see God out of this experience. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, um, now, I want you to hear me also this. Friend groups are more than okay. There are going to be people in this room that you are closer to than others. I mean, we're in a big enough of a room. There's enough people in this room. You can't be equally close to everybody. You're just not going to be, and that's okay. It's okay. But, right, what makes the difference between a friend group and a clique? Exclusion. An unwillingness to be a dotted circle, but a desire to be an enclosed circle, right? And, um, and that's dangerous. And that happens. In every single campus ministry I've ever been a part of, which now I've now been a part of four, it happens. In every campus ministry I've ever talked to, I've talked to a lot of them, it happens. It's hard to be a college student, right? So, yeah. What else? One or two more. We write them off, right? We, we define them by that one experience with them. Don't give it a second chance, right? Yeah. The, um, there's a few that I got. All right. Passive aggression, right? <laughs> I mean, passive aggression is definitely a way in which we have not valued human life in this ministry. <laughs> I mean, we've all done it, right? We're upset. And instead of actually just saying, hey, like, you know, maybe I'm just like blowing this out of proportion, but, you know, I'm. I'm struggling with this. What's something you say kind of bothered me? No, man, we're just gonna we're just gonna like subtly press their buttons to let them know, like, hey, I got a problem with what you did, right? Um, here's the problem with that: the conflict happens, but it's never solved. Resolution and reconciliation never happens when we just live in a constant state of passive aggression, right? And so, all it what does it do? Instead of ending conflict by walking through it. 
by never actually walking through it, we've just perpetuated it longer. Second, holding grudges, right? And this is, I think, some of what you were saying, Mom. We allow anger to define our relationship, right? And, and then what happens? What happens? When we allow anger to define our relationship with somebody else, what happens? We become what? The word I'm thinking of starts with a B. Bitter, right? We become bitter. Bitterness, right? Man, we want to talk about murdering ourselves when we hate another, tearing the soul apart. Man, nothing, I mean this, because I've I'm, I'm been on both sides of this, actually. Nothing will tear you apart like bitterness. I mean, it really, I mean, you, if you've ever watched someone be bitter, if you yourselves have kind of allowed yourself to become bitter, which, I, which I've done before, I mean, it'll just tear you to shreds, right? I mean, it just, it'll, it'll, it'll ruin your life. Um, exclusion, we talked about that one. And then, uh, you know, we talked about more maybe intentional exclusion, but let, well, let me talk about this. Um, ignoring the fringe, right? So exclusion is, is intentional, but ignoring the fringe, right? When we're not proactive about valuing human life and we're just indifferent towards somebody, right? We're just indifferent or apathetic, right? They just, yeah, sure, they just don't matter though, right? Like I don't hate them, but I'm just indifferent towards them. Um, uh, you know, this is, I'm about to quote, uh, this, this is awful. I'm about to quote the Lumineers, right? What is the opposite of love? Indifference. That's right. Um, and, and I think there's some truth to that statement, right? Indifference kills, right? Like, I, you know, in some ways, at least if someone hates you, you are worthy of their time. <laughs> so if you're, they're just indifferent towards you. I mean... I don't know about you, but I think maybe the, the times where I've felt the most small is not when someone's hated me, but when someone's just completely indifferent towards me. Right? I, just, I just don't matter to them. I'm not even worth their time enough to, for them to hate me. All right. Y'all good. This, this is great. I mean, this, you know, this is what we call outsourcing a lesson to the audience. I mean, Y'all are teaching yourselves. It's good stuff, man. That's why they pay me the big bucks, right, Dale? Um, all right. Three, why do we murder, allow anger to define our lives, and not value human life? In other words, why do we let that happen? Why do we let all this happen? What are some reasons you think? Easier. Yeah, man. It may not lead to life. It may not be good, but man, it's, <sighs> don't have to leave our comfort zone, right? Even a status quo, even if it's less good than what it possibly could be, is at least more comfortable than having to go through the disruption of conflict <laughs> or, or changing our lives, right? So, what else? A lot of times, you don't even have to think about it. It's just a reaction. Not, you know. Yeah, so like this lack of intentionality, right? I mean, like, basically, we just live on autopilot, right? And, and go back to what I was talking about earlier, right? Let's say you're in church eight hours a week, and you're being formed by the Word of God eight hours a week. And that means it's really, I think, close to 160 hours a week you're being formed by a society that doesn't value human life well. We autopilot in that society. We're going to allow what's forming us 160 hours just to take over our lives, right? No. What else? You get some instant gratification just acting impulsively. Yeah, man. Yeah, feels good sometimes just to like lash out on somebody. I mean, we shouldn't do that. Right? It feels good, right? We don't do it for no reason. What else? Do y'all think I took a little bit too much joy in saying that? Attention. Yeah, it's like, I'm here! Right? You know, sometimes that's what we get. 
But Say, oh, say, say that again. Yeah. We don't like admitting weakness. Yeah, we don't like admitting weakness. Yes. I don't like doing that. What else? One more. One more. What? If you have like no direction or purpose. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, this sense of, like, kind of aimlessness, right? You know, which, by the way, I mean, you probably often feel as you are in a phase in your life where you don't know what you're going to do with the rest of your life and trying to figure that out, and you probably feel purposeless all the time. We said that in college. All right, I have, I have a lot on this one. Um, all right. I think we're afraid to face ourselves. One of the things that I noticed in college, um, there was a particular person, I feel like I should like just shut off the, my mic here. There was a particular person in, in our campus ministry who um, I, I really struggled relating to. And it was because they were really similar to me. <laughs> and, and they really frustrated me and they pushed my buttons because I was so dang similar to them. And the things that they did that pushed my buttons the most were the things that I hated the most about myself. And I think we often un, uh, don't value human life when we allow anger to find relationships because we hate what we see of ourselves the most in others. And we don't want to face ourselves. And we don't want to admit to ourselves that we have weakness too. Another one, um, we're, we're insecure, right? We're not secure. And when we're insecure, what does that mean? We're volatile. We're on edge. We always feel like we have to prove ourselves, right? So if we have not found our identity in the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the only thing that is a firm foundation, we have put our security in something else, right? We talk about this a lot. We put ourselves in a plethora of different things that aren't secure. So we just live on this up and down roller coaster of life. And when we live in all that up and down roller coaster, we get a little moody. At least I do. And we don't value human life, right? Um, I think, this one, I think this one's interesting. Submission. We aren't willing to submit ourselves to a community, and therefore we don't have skin in the game when it comes to that community. We do not want to submit. Because when the moment we submit, we are saying, we are saying that other people might have a say in what I'm allowed to do in my life. And we just aren't willing to do that especially in the time where we have as much freedom as college. Busyness, we talked about last week, right? A good phrase to live by is weary people are an angry people. When we use people as means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves, right? What a, I mean, think about when you get mad at people or you get frustrated with somebody, why are you getting frustrated with them? Probably, if you're like me, probably because they didn't react to something the way you expected them to react to it. Therefore, they didn't serve your purpose that you had. But what does that mean you've made somebody else? You have devalued them. They are no longer an end in and of themselves. They are a means to an end. Undealt with hurt. Great quote comes from a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Blame is never a substitute for grief. Instead of working through our own issues, we have to assign blame. Because then, right, because grief is internal. Grief is something I have to deal with. It's something I have to walk through. And that's hard. But blame outsources it. It's external. 
and I put all that and I project all that hurt on someone else and it's their fault. But here this blame is never a substitute for grief. The last one I'll say, I have a couple others, but I'll skip them. The last one I'll say is, is, is this idea of self-victimization. I think one of the reasons we murder and allow anger to define our lives and we don't value others is because we have allowed certain narratives to become the realities in which we live. And in those narratives, we are the victim. I have been wronged. And we form these narratives because we have to justify to ourselves certain behaviors that we have or certain things that we are feeling. And so we cling to these narratives and we allow them, we cling to them long enough, we allow them to become core to our identity. And therefore, we can't give them up anymore because we've actually based our entire identity off this singular narrative as someone who has been wrong. Man, that is a great way to live in hate and anger. All right. Final question. Y'all doing great. Keep teaching this lesson for me. What do we do about all this? All right. we, we've talked about what a community that values, values human life looks like. We've talked about struggles with it and why we do struggle with it. So, okay, in light of all that, how do we overcome anger and what are ways we can be proactive about valuing human life in our ministry? Take time to reflect on what you're thinking and what you're doing. Yeah. Actually, intentionality, right? I mean, like, just, we got to start being intentional, right? What else? We can't go on autopilot. Yes. You have to devalue yourself. Yeah, right. If we're going to, I mean, this is kind of a zero, life in some ways is a zero-sum game. It's going to take some vulnerability, right? We're, I'm going to have to put myself at risk for the good of someone else. And by the way, if you look at the example of Jesus, well, if we're following him, that's what, exactly what he did. What else? Talk to people who we trust. Talk to people who, to whom we trust. Admit it when you're angry with somebody or something is frustrating. Yeah, and that's probably true both of, to ourselves, because <laughs> often I'll lie to myself about that, and to them, right? What else? Yeah, this does not get easier after college. So it's a really good time when you actually have a little bit of time to, to choose what you do with your time to start forming habits. It pays off in the long run. What else? This is good. This is great. Strong to put our faith in action. Yeah. Yeah, like, do we actually believe all the stuff that we say? Couple more, couple more. I know it's late. I know this has gone long. I, I, I feel bad about it. What else? Couple more. Pray. Pray, right? Yeah, like, goodness, we're not gonna, we're not gonna achieve this on our own, right? This is gonna take the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. And that's gonna come through prayer. One more, and then I'll, I'm, I'm gonna give up two short answers. Short for me. Thank you, Kelsey. <laughs> one more. I want one more from you. What? Yes, Tina. 
Do we not have one more? I, won't, I, I want one more, but I'll, I'll go if we want. I won't let the silence linger forever. All right, sold to me. All right. The first is, I promise this one's short. We've got to start having healthy conflict. I mean, it's something we've got to learn, but guess what? I'm outsourcing that entire conversation next week, so we're moving on. The second is this. We've got to become more empathetic. If we want to be a people who are able to value human life, we've got to become more empathetic. And I think that takes two things. First, we've got to know others. And second, we've got to know thyself. All right? We've got to know others. As Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or admit to do and more in light of what they suffer. We've got to start getting to know people's stories. Behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? We know that's true of ourselves, and guess what? It's also true of others. We've got to know people's stories. But what does that imply? What must we do if we're going to get to know other people's stories? We've got to start pushing deeper inside of our relationships. We've actually got to get to know one another. If we're going to become an empathetic people because we want to begin to value human life, we've got to start pushing deeper in our conversations and understanding people's stories and understanding why they think and do the things that they do so we can regard them less in light of what they do or admit to do and more in light of what they suffer. Because don't we want people to do the same for us? Second, know thyself. Michael Horton puts it this way, forgiveness is best born out of our own sin and brokenness. The people who are most merciful are the ones who receive mercy in the most broken places. And again, I said this, we've got to be willing to admit it to ourselves. We've got to be willing to admit to ourselves that we are weak. We've got to allow God work in that. Heal us, mend us, and transform us. And by the way, that's not easy. That's hard work. But if we want to value human life, we've got to allow God to work in ourselves first.